Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Rachel Biblo, Senior Vice President and Partner for Strategic Integration and Transformation at Press Ganey, and Dr. Tejal Gandhi, Press Ganey's Chief Safety and Transformation Officer, about the evolution of healthcare quality over the last 20 years. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined by Tejal Gandhi, Chief Safety and Transformation Officer, and Rachel Biblo, SVP Transformational Solutions with Press Ganey. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having us. All right. And um, before we get into it, uh, wondering if you both could tell me a little bit about yourselves and about uh, Press Ganey. Sure. I'm happy to go first. Um, uh, so uh, my name is Tejal Gandhi. I'm the Chief Safety and Transformation Officer at Press Ganey, as you mentioned. Um, my background is I'm an internal medicine doctor and have uh, had operational roles in quality and safety as the uh, director of patient safety at Brigham and Women's in Boston for about a decade, and then was the chief quality officer at Partners Healthcare. And then I left to run the National Patient Safety Foundation for about four years until we merged with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where I was for um, almost three years. And after that, uh, joined Press Ganey. And so I will pass it over to Rachel. Great, thanks, Tejal. So I'm Rachel Biblo, and I'm a senior vice president here at Prescani. And uh, my focus tends to be really on strategic integration. How do we bring sort of the the whole together and really understand how they impact the different pieces impact each other and can either strengthen each other and and sort of amplify positive attributes, uh, or sometimes where some of the pieces and parts don't work as well together, and we need to tighten things up. So uh, I have the privilege of working side by side with Tejal and. Uh, in my life before coming to Press Ganey, uh, I served at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for over 16 years, where I started in a clinical role, actually, as an intern in our NICU, and then took on um, more formal leadership roles. By the time I was leaving, I was the enterprise sponsor for experience, which really, the way we defined it was the combination of safe, high-quality, and compassionate care coming together. So I uh, really a privilege to work side-by-side -side with physicians and administrators to really drive a high quality experience across the board. So, you know, a little bit about us as Press Ganey, you know, and I think many reasons why I was attractive to Tejal and I to, to come and join forces here is when you think about our mission is really to transform healthcare. You know, we're built on an, an, an incredible platform of data analytics, but it's not about just the analytics piece. It's about really pushing innovation and driving excellence. We're really all um, centered around our purpose and sort of our performance. How well are we achieving our purpose in our organizations and how well are we pushing each other to drive that improvement? Because ultimately all of us will be patients or family members of patients. Uh, and so we really do expect that, you know, as our organization is to be true partners to our healthcare systems uh, to really help guide them and, and point out the, the insights that they're seeing, you know, in their data and their performance so that we can help push innovation. And we also have the power in the numbers is we have the largest database uh, across the country, across the world, um, so it means we have world-class intelligence and an analytics platform that allows us to look at things uh, together and really understand the correlations and understand the cause and effect uh, between things and help make help leaders make the tough decisions a little bit easier uh, because they're data informed and not you know guessing and sort of hedging uh, where things go. So it's a really uh, it's an extraordinary organization with a lot of focus on how do we continue to shape the landscape of healthcare in a positive way for all of us as as patients and consumers uh, in the industry. Excellent. Well, speaking of the landscape of healthcare, um, 
in 2001, the Institute of Medicine released Crossing the Quality Chasm, which um, you know really uh, made a big splash in terms of looking at patient care quality. Wanted to get some thoughts from both of you about how the healthcare landscape has evolved since then. Yeah, I can start with that. Um, I mean, that that really was a landmark report, and I think it uh, really laid out the domains of quality very nicely and uh, rigorously, and and has really changed how we think about quality because of that laying out of those six domains: safe, timely, effective. Um, uh, equitable, uh, efficient, and patient-centered. And so, you know, we had never before that really, I think, looked at quality in that way. And it was often very much uh, sort of a, a qualitative uh, aspect of healthcare where, you know, we, we sort of assumed that doctors and nurses and others were delivering high-quality care and they knew what quality was and they were delivering on it. That was sort of where we were. I think before that report and this report really outlined those six domains and the fact that we need to focus on all six to have comprehensive quality and I think since then there really has been um, a focus on thinking about how to advance those areas and measure them uh, though I do think that there's been more focus on some of those areas than others for example I think there's been a lot more focus on safety thankfully mm -hmm. um, but maybe less focus on equity and until very recently and so you know there's sort of been variable progress in those six areas but the fact that we had that framework and it really pushed us to then really think about measurement and improvement in those uh, six areas I think is is what that significant change is that that report um, brought to us Rachel? Yeah, you know, I would add to that. I, I think what we're seeing is that the expansion, as, as you talked about, is, you know, we focused really around safety and efficiency at the onset, uh, and they felt more tangible, and they are very tangible. I mean, none of us want to go to an organization and have unsafe care. Uh, but, you know, I think what we're seeing is there's this broader understanding of what healthcare quality overall looks like as we push into sort of consumerism even further. You know, there's a lot of decisions that go into that value chain for all of us as we think about why do we choose certain healthcare um, organizations? Why do we choose to work with certain clinicians? You know, there's a lot of choice that's going on in the market. And I think for us to recognize that we can't just be technically excellent, uh, there needs to be sort of an orchestrated uh, or sort of an orchestra that plays well together, a symphony that comes together in many ways to make sure that things that happen before we get into the care, during care, and then after care uh, really move smoothly. You know, we hear organizations talk about a frictionless experience but um, or seamless experience, but it's really that, that full big picture of quality coming together is how do these different domains work together? And now we have a lot more rigor that we can apply and measure and help people understand uh, how those other parts contribute to the whole, uh, which I think is really, I, I think really exciting. And I don't think that we're able to to go back uh, to sort of a more narrow aspect, especially when we think about how all of us experience the, the larger world beyond healthcare now. And, and just to build on that even a little bit more, um, you know, as you think about, you know, you asked about where we've come since that report, but, you know, there's clearly lots of opportunities to to do more. And Rachel touched on a lot of that. Um, but really thinking about all those domains of quality across that entire journey is going to be critical. Um, you know, starting to think more about it in ambulatory, but we need to think about it all the way to the home setting and uh, even all the way to when um, someone's even just thinking about getting care and how do we give them a quality experience when they're trying to select their 
um, doctor or practice or hospital. So, you know, really broadening it to that entire journey is critical. And also, one of the areas I've been particularly focused on is, is breaking down silos, because those six domains, which I talked about how much I like them, have sometimes ended up very siloed in organizations. And so really thinking about how these relate to each other and how to merge initiatives so that you're really thinking about all of these together as opposed to safety in a silo or efficiency in a silo um, or equity in a silo, I think is, is kind of a, a crucial next piece that we're gonna need to um, focus on. Um, Tejal, you, you mentioned equity and, and how, you know, obviously, more needs to be done in that respect. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about exactly what you're what you're thinking there. Yeah, um, I mean, some have called it the the forgotten domain of that IOM six, yeah. um, and uh, and certainly not forgotten now, especially you know with the COVID pandemic. But but we had plenty of equity issues, you know, before COVID, and we'll have plenty uh, once once the pandemic subsides. And so I'm I am hopeful that the attention that has uh, come to equity in the last couple of years is is really the start of, of continuing to build momentum on that area. And in terms of, you know, what needs to be done, I mean, there's, there's so much that needs to be done, um, you know, and I think we need to talk about this in the context of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion for our patients and also for our workforce. Um, this is not uh, limited to, to health equity for patients, but certainly thinking about uh, uh, this for the workforce as well is critical. And so two pieces that I'll highlight. One is we have to actually understand where the inequities are. And that means collecting data around race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability status, you know, all the different things that um, uh, could lead to inequities. We need to be collecting that data and then routinely segmenting all the data that we have to look for where differences exist. And I use the word routinely um, very consciously because often organizations pick one or two measures, segment those, and that's their work on equity. And what really needs to happen is bringing it to all the work that we do. And that's, so my second point is breaking down the silos again of, you know, equity can't be kind of, you know, in its own silo uh, on the side, but has to be really embedded into quality, safety, workforce, et cetera. And so, you know, I'm a safety person. So as I think about it for safety, you know, really bringing it to any safety outcomes that we're measuring, uh, say it's central line infections, you know, are we segmenting that by certain populations? Um, if you think about uh, safety event reporting, are we segmenting to understand if there's more or less reports for certain populations or root cause analysis? Are we asking questions about inequities as we understand the root causes of harms that are occurring? Um, and just embedding it in to our standard work that we do in safety and that we do in patient experience and that we do in, in these other domains is going to be really critical as we go forward. Um, you mentioned uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. I was wondering to get, if you could give me some thoughts on, you know, what did the COVID-19 pandemic reveal about the healthcare industry, both good and bad? Rachel, Rachel, I could start that. Yeah, I could take it. To, yeah, you know, so I'll start with this. I think from a, a strengths perspective, you know, I think we can all agree that there was a lot of uh, challenges here. But I think some of the strengths that I would say I'd like to focus on is that organizations a uh, prove to themselves that they can rapidly redesign. Uh, you know, for many years we would sort of think, oh my gosh, we can't we can't move to telehealth. We always kind of had these. Um, 
barriers, some self-imposed or some, you know, real, but what it taught us was we can rapidly uh, redesign ourselves and shift uh, and think very quickly and transform in many ways uh, in, with speed, uh, which I think was, was not necessarily something uh, many of us felt comfortable doing in the past. And so I think this really pushed people, I had people say, you know, we learned we can do things in 90 days. Uh, we could do things in 30 days. We could do things in nine days uh, that we thought would take years. Uh, and so I think it created a real, I mean, it's not sustainable to always go through such uh, rapid change, but I think it proved that we we are a lot stronger than maybe we, we thought we were. I think the other piece of that is um, those systems that were really strong and had adopted principles of high reliability organizing and had really strong infrastructures or sort of governing uh, governance structures and councils and ways to manage sort of emergencies and crisis um, because they had huddles and ways to convene staff and just, you know, just cascade information throughout the organization and get people uh, connected and plugged into what was happening. I think they did really well um, or as well as they could in these in these instances and really leaned in on those pieces. But those organizations and Tejal, maybe you want to share a little bit more about this, but organizations that did not necessarily have that investment in those HRO principles and and really the the rigor behind their structures and the way they met and sometimes often just had people who were in volunteer roles, you know, serving in emergency management um, roles, you know, like they, they struggled a little bit more because it heightened sort of the accentuated in many ways, the weaknesses, um, but also built up on the strengths of many that were many organizations that were able to do this really well. But Tejal, I'm sure you have other thoughts too about what, what we saw. Yeah, I mean, I do think there were good things that uh, happened. I mean, there were, you know, there was much more sharing across organizations of best practices and collaboration. And I think those um, activities hopefully will continue. And as Rachel mentioned, um, you know, expansion of high reliability practices um, in terms of communication practices and huddles and leader rounding and all those kinds of things that, again, I hope are positives that will continue. Um, but we did see um, that COVID also really kind of accentuated some of the problems we had in healthcare even before the pandemic. And I think, you know, I talked about inequities as one of them. I think COVID has just only, uh, you know, magnified that issue. The other issue that it has really magnified is, is um, issues around uh, workforce safety. And when I say that, I mean physical and uh, psychological safety of the workforce. And again, this was an issue before the pandemic where burnout rates were really high. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't necessarily have really good embedded processes to be trying to address that. And then COVID came and it's just, you know, uh, magnified the problem. And so, um, so I think those are, you know, uh, certainly two of the things that were maybe in that bad category, as you talk about the good and the bad, that those are definitely um, two that, that got, that got magnified. Um, the other thing to build on what Rachel said is, you know, we've, we saw that organizations that had these high reliability, high reliability practices really, did feel like they were able to manage things better. Um, but what I think we learned is that that is not the uh, the norm in healthcare. And the reason I say that is because if you look at safety outcomes, for example, and CDC and uh, the Preskini uh, NDNQI database, uh, National Database of Nursing Quality Indicators, both have shown that over the last year and a half, we've seen worsening in uh, safety outcomes, things like central line infections, falls, pressure injuries, uh, and uh, with uh, our uh, Preskini safety culture data nationally, we saw a worsening of safety culture. And so, you know, now 
you could say this is not a surprise given everything that hospitals and health systems had to deal with that these would have worsened. Um, but what it shows is that the best practices around things like central line infections perhaps were not as reliably implemented as we had thought in the fact that they could kind of deteriorate in performance over that last year and a half. And so thinking of, as we go forward, we really need to think about how to be much more reliable so that when we have these stressors, and there's going to be new stressors and things that come along all the time, hopefully not to the level of a pandemic, but when we have stressors, organizations are resilient enough and reliable enough that they can handle those stressors and not see deterioration in some of these very important outcomes. Um, and yeah, clearly, you know, uh, a lot of organizations were throwing so much into dealing with COVID that you know, other things, you know, probably, you know, fell by the wayside. Um, do you feel that uh, we'll be better prepared for the next pandemic or, or you know, major, uh, you know, infectious disease to hit, um, you know, when it does come around? I do think we're going to be better prepared. I mean, there's been a lot of lessons learned. And as I mentioned, a lot of positives in terms of, you know, structures and processes that had to get implemented pretty fast during this pandemic that, that uh, you know, I'm optimistic will stay in place um, as we go forward. So I do think uh, we'll be better prepared. Um, however, I also think that uh, we have a lot of challenges given where the workforce is right now. And so, you know, it, it's going to be hard to be prepared if we have staffing shortages and uh, high levels of burnout, et cetera. So there's a lot of work that we need to do to really, um, you know, build up our uh, our workforce capacity to handle uh, another one of these kinds of things and also ensure that we've got those cultures in place where people feel like they, uh, you know, trust their leadership and see a commitment to uh, uh, supporting them and supporting things like patient safety in their organization. So. Um, so I guess that's a mixed answer in that, you know, I think we're going to be better prepared in some ways, but we have a lot of work to do because we've seen such declines in certain things over the last couple of years. Yeah, if I could just add to that, Tejal, I think investing in our workforce, you know, when we, we were talking with so many leaders across the country, you know, I think we'd be remiss to talk about the workforce well-being and, you know, where the healthcare industry, I mean, this is, we're seeing people um, reconsider roles, leaving the industry and making changes and, and uh, it, there's a lot. But what I'm seeing that to me is optimistic is people are recognizing the investment uh, in really deliberately shaping the culture, really finding different ways to support the workforce that shows up every day to bring their very best. It's we have to be thinking this is not about, you know, putting up, you know, pizza in, uh, you know, a break room. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, really strategic talent um, management where we're really supporting the best of our people and spending time uh, developing leaders, developing universal skills, really helping support people uh, in very different ways than I, I think we've seen in the past. And not to say there haven't been great programs put out there, but I think the investment in how important our people really are and every single person in our organization, you know, plays a, a critical role in our success. And so we have to invest uh, in all of those resources and all those people. And, uh, you know, and we see when we invest in our people and have higher engagement, we do drive safety outcomes, we drive quality, we drive experience. And so uh, that investment, I, I think, in that recognition of what our workforce is going through and, and how critical they are to the success of, of all of us uh, who will be patients, I think is, is something we will never look back from. And I, I hope we will not. 
And and Rachel, just to build on that, I mean, there's data, and we have data at Prescani national data to support exactly what you just said, which is if you have higher levels of engagement, you have a stronger safety culture. It's a correlation, so stronger culture could lead to higher engagement. But either way, it means that that engagement is so critical for the safety culture, which is you know strongly correlated correlated with safety outcomes. Uh, so you know the data is clear that this is. This is about supporting the workforce, which in turn will lead to better outcomes for patients. Uh, and I think that message needs to be really clear as well. Uh, again, breaking down those silos between these two areas and understanding how interconnected they are. Um, you know, even bringing in the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece, Jay, that we've been talking about, we know that perceptions of uh, diversity and equity in the organization also are strongly correlated with uh, engagement and also strongly correlated with your likelihood to stay. And so if yeah. someone uh, feels like they're in a diverse and equitable environment, they're far more likely to stay in the organization um, compared to those who don't. And so, you know, as you think about staffing uh, shortages and so forth, this, this focus on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is also going to be a really critical piece, driving engagement, driving safety culture, et cetera. So, um, you know, we have to look at this in a really holistic way because it does impact um, patient outcomes in the end of the day. Well, speaking of data, um, let's talk about data analytics um, and how are data analytics affecting the quality of patient care? Rachel, want to start? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think one is we have more data at our fingertips than maybe ever before. Uh, so I think they're more sophisticated. It's also a lot to digest. And so, you know, part of what I, I think at, at this point and, and where I really appreciate what our team can do is, you know, we like to be able to cut through the noise. We know healthcare is solving really complex uh, challenges every single day. And so how do we help cut through all the masses of data? How do we help really uh, bring pieces together to really triangulate and identify what's happening? Uh, and then, you know, really understanding what do we do to act upon that data. So there's a lot out there uh, and we can slice it a couple of different ways or lots of different ways. Um, but I think it's allowing us to understand sort of the, you know, different segments of our population, the differences within it, but also really good actionable information that leaders need to make tough decisions every single day. And I think that's where the power of analytics is, is that, you know, it's allowing us not to guess uh, or spend time saying like, oh, wow, we have to like boil the ocean here. It allows us to bring data sets together in an integrated way and then really isolate or sort of triangulate where are we seeing the most, you know, I should say pain points, uh, but, you know, who's impacted the most, where is it happening most often, and then how do we act to really drive improvement there? I think that there's a sophistication uh, in the way we're using this now that is really amplifying uh, our ability to move quickly. And And I think the other piece is, we're bringing more and more of the voice of the patients into this broader set of data. Uh, and when I really think about that, the power of partnership with patients and their families and making sure that their voices, whether in quant or qual uh, data sets are included, I think are just going to make it more powerful. I mean, think about it. We all have skin in the game, whether we're you know wearing the badge or we're wearing the wristband. Um, and I think that the, the power of what analytics can do to help us ensure that we're not missing uh, one of the, you know, the expert pieces to the puzzle, uh, I think is really uh, an exciting development, I think, where we are today. But Tejal, you have probably have other thoughts too. Yeah, I mean, I do think this idea of uh, 
filtering through all the data to get the insights is really critical because this concept, this idea of data overload is, is you know, front and center. Uh, and, you know, you've got busy managers and leaders who don't have the time to go look at all of this data and try to figure out what is the, the one or two things I can do that is really going to have impact. It's just very difficult given all the uh, data out there. And so, you know, we've been really focusing on kind of this idea of integrated analytics and bringing all the data together. Um, I like to use the example of, uh, you know, if we can show a unit their patient experience data, their safety outcomes data, their workforce engagement data, kind of all together, then that can be incredibly valuable because if, if say, a unit has high uh, central line infection rates. So in the past, you know, I ran safety, I would have gone to that unit and said, okay, let's do an intervention around central line infection. But if you can look at it holistically and see that, oh, Patient experience is also pretty poor here, but more importantly, also the rate of burnout is really high here. Um, and there's very low worker and workforce engagement um, amongst the nursing and physician staff. Then before adding on one more initiative around central line, it means that leadership really has to focus on that engagement and burnout issue first, because you're not gonna be successful with one more intervention if that's where the workforce is. And then that will drive both experience and the efforts around central line. So I think this idea of looking at multiple data sources to prioritize where to begin, where it's going to be the most impact is really essential. All right. So we looked at sort of what's happened over the last 20 years. I was wondering what you, you thought about, you know, sort of what some future developments are that will happen over the next 20 years. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? I, I think when you look out on the horizon, I think there's some exciting things. I think we're seeing more and more active participation of patients in their healthcare, really driving uh, decisions and really thinking about what matters to them. I think that's where that emphasis on the value chain will matter, is what matters to different age groups, different, um, you know, how people identify in their community. I think we are going to see uh, the need to really focus on health as well as the care aspect. And I think organizations are recognizing, you know, think about, you know, home and, you know, uh, hospital at home and, you know, different programs or wearables. There's a lot more that's happening uh, as we go forward in the future of the way we're all going to think we interact with our health systems and the, the type of responsiveness we're going to need and sort of the, the proactive management as well as the reactive when there's an acute event. And so, you know, I, I think what we're going to see is just a continued push um, forward in how we partner with patients and their families to help keep people healthy, uh, as well as what we're doing when they are in need of care and how do we make that a lot more accessible um, to all. And what that looks and feels like is gonna, it, it can't be a one size fits all. And so really using uh, the information we have at our fingertips to help inform the way we design care, the way we support different populations differently uh, so they have great outcomes for, you know, for them. I think is an important piece of what we're going to see. And, uh, you know, I think that's, to me, that's exciting. It means we're all pushing in a, in a way that drives improvement. Uh, but I, I think we're going to see a lot more active participation uh, and also organizations recognizing that the work that's happening is happening far beyond the, the typical four walls of a hospital, which we've seen for a long time. But I think we're going to see that just continue even more. Yeah, and I mean, I agree with all of that. And I think, um, you know, certainly we know that technology is going to have a huge role as we go forward and thinking about 
um, not just care across the entire continuum in terms of uh, you know care in the home or hospital at home, but also virtual care, uh, telemedicine, et cetera, and and understanding how we really measure quality in all of these different contexts is going to be really critical as we go forward. You know, how do we leverage um, uh, AI and natural language processing, machine learning, all that sort of stuff as well to make sure that we're getting the maximum insights and I think the the thing that I would really um, envision happening as we go forward as well is is this shift from uh, reactive to proactive. Rachel alluded to that a bit. Is um, you know instead of kind of reacting when there's poor quality or a safety event, how do we get proactive and predictive and understand where there's a risk of those things happening and intervene before something bad actually happens and I think that is an area that we have a lot of opportunity, but we're sort of getting to the point where we may have the the tools and abilities to really start to uh, to move forward in that area. And then the last thing I'll say is is you know optimism that we will start to um, really be thinking in a much more integrated way of of uh, you know how we bring all these domains of quality together uh, uh, in optimal ways, like bringing equity to all of the other domains, et cetera. So I think there's there's a lot of uh, opportunity that we have in front of us, but I think there's uh, uh, room for optimism as well that, that we can really start to, to take on some of these challenges. All right. Well, that's some great insight. Um, Tejal and Rachel, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jay. This was great. That wraps up episode 42 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.